Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Barrett. It's a fresh view coming on. ABC Radio. We've got to bring everybody together because this violence has no geographical or racial boundaries against uh, mostly women. But of course, our statistics in the First Nations community is very high compared to the deaths of non-Indigenous women. And that has to be addressed. And we can't address this without doing trauma healing from a cultural perspective, uh, dealing with the social determinants of health. From a member of the generation who broke down the barriers to the powerful voice of a new generation. I'm just infinitely grateful for the spaces that collect and centre and present black books to black kids because if we don't actually really interrupt the otherwise very whitewashed bookshelves or library shelves or bookstores, we're never actually going to get people who are going to come to that space and look at it and go, you know what, this could be me as well. I could have a book up here and it could be about me and my family and my community as opposed to just talking about these really far-off ideas that for most of us are never something that we're going to be experiencing, yet we're taught is supposed to be the pinnacle of storytelling. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. The formidable Dr Graceland Smallwood is not only a leader in her field, but has also been a lifelong advocate on the rights of First Nations people. It seemed like a good time to celebrate Graceland and ask her about her career and her work. And here she is telling her story in her own words. Yes, I was born in 1951 in Townsville and um, I'm actually one of 19 siblings. My mother had 14 and um, my dad, when they separated, had the rest. But what shaped my career is my beautiful uh, fair-skinned father was uh, removed as a three-year-old boy and sent to the infamous mission of Palm Island and he became exempt from the legislation of the Protection Act when he was 18. And I guess I was privileged to grow up in a community. I used to uh, interview Many of the elders' storytelling was uh, part of our, our daily menu uh, in terms of everyone having a say. And I had like a little chip, I suppose, hypothetically in my brain because I remember it was just like yesterday when a lot of uh, our community would sit around in circles and I'd hear the most horrendous stories uh, from the elders on when they were removed, what happened to them when they were, their brothers and sisters are all separated. So at, whilst it was very traumatic to hear all those stories, uh, Larissa, I never forgot the pain and suffering and always the elders, in particular my uh, paternal grandparents and parents said, we want all of you to strive and get a good education, but don't forget the stories, don't forget where you come from and keep on basically, they weren't using big words because so many of our people couldn't read and write because they weren't allowed in the education system before 1975. But because I absolutely admired and respected um, those elders, um, I never forgot their words of wisdom and became quite vocal in primary school, Garbutt State School, then Aiken Vale in Townsville, and then West End, very vocal, especially about the social studies 
how they were saying uh, Captain Cook discovered Australia. And uh, Aboriginal people were quite, um, my people were quite dehumanised uh, even in school and in the mainstream media. Now, I never knew much about mainstream media because we didn't have electricity, but it was just the common trait where the elders used to be very frightened that welfare, they always talk about welfare, could come and, and take the children. I mean, it was a real fear that our elders had. And uh, I look back now as a great-grandmother myself and think the pain and the trauma that our elders were going through. And so that's what shaped me. And I went to my last primary school was West End State School. And the first uh, Aboriginal school teacher I got was uh, the late uh, Mr. Philip Stewart, who was sent to Palm Island with his lovely sister, Mari Stewart. And Mari was at the Katzenham Conference. She was a nurse. And Mr. Stewart really shaped uh, our way of thinking because he walked into the classroom, this handsome uh, First Nations man. And because of our stereotyping, we always had white school teachers. We thought he was from India. And he made it very clear that he um, was um, Aborigine and a proud Aborigine and he was related to all the the Aboriginal and Islander students in the class because we never used First Nations then. And he said he was going to teach the real history of Australia and he asked all the uh, Aboriginal and Islander students, which weren't many, and we're all in the dunces' classes because we could barely read and write, and he said he wanted to see us every lunchtime and we didn't know what that lunchtime was for. And he he taught us the three R's, reading, writing and arithmetic. And he said, you Aboriginal and Islander students must thrive to be better than the white students because you have to get a good education and we have to fight racism. And he said, I come from a mission called Palm Island and I've suffered that racism every day of my life and we need to better ourselves. And he said it in a way that we weren't, the scum that people, uh, the mainstream promoted us to. He said it, I guess, like a bit like the Dalai Lama, like my beautiful dad. And uh, he changed my life forever. And because uh, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't connected to the Western curriculum. So I started to study. We used to go up there and on a, he had a blackboard and the duster and piece of chalk. And he would talk so much to us about the curriculum. We learned it all like a parrot. And then of an afternoon, he'd uh, three days a week, he'd come up to the old shack where we lived on the hill and it was condemned. And he'd continue to basically, when I look back, do tutoring. But he was there and a lot of elders used to be uh, visiting uh, my mum. And uh, they'd talk about the similar stories that I heard uh, in the other Garbutt and Aikenvale suburbs. So I guess it was inevitable that really shaped me. And my mum used to say, you know, before you become a big human rights activist, you make sure you get a good education. And mum was pretty tough and dad was very gentle. And uh, I then um, finished my uh, uh, primary school. I was actually topping the class after Mr Stewart um, did so much hard work with us. And then I moved on to high school. Uh, and got all straight A's in grade 10 and applied for secretary's jobs. And uh, many of the employees in our town, our town was named after Robert Towns, the blackbirder of um, 
my grandmother's people on the, the South Sea side and uh, was named after after him. And uh, when I took my qualifications in, there was always an excuse. But the first thing they asked me was what nationality I was. And I proudly said, I'm Aboriginal and Islander and I never got the job. There were a couple of employees that said, if you don't identify as Aboriginal or Islander, we'll give you the job. And people find that very hard to believe there hasn't been one First Nations family in this country that hasn't been subjected to the trauma and the stigma of racism, let alone the process of colonisation. And we've carried that trauma from those uh, transgenerational all the way through and we must break that cycle of trauma so our children, our grandchildren and future generations won't continue to have all that. So I didn't get the job and because uh, I was always so proud of of being uh, First Nations or Aboriginal Islander and uh, I then applied for nursing and went into nursing and 1967, which was an incredible year for us um, because I used to listen to the elders. They were saying some of them were trying to get down to the, the down south where all the demonstrations were going on. Oh, it was like um, a television, you know, a, a television. We got electricity and we're watching black and white television and uh, there were such famous people that I knew about. And we also knew the late Dr. Roberta Sykes, who used to go to St. Pat's College. And she was quite active and a very stunning woman who you're connected to. But we used to, I used to listen to, uh, she she connected to you know, the old people, like Honey Evelyn Scott, uh, a lot of old people uh, who have passed on, Uncle Koiki Mabo. And we had heard she was going down, down to Canberra, down to Sydney. And uh, I think she was already there before the um, the demonstration, but she got quite connected with a lot of the activists like Gary Foley. And uh, I thought, oh, I want to be able to speak up and and look deadly like her. And uh, I and Dr. Sykes and my beautiful sister used to be the go-go dancers at a cafe that was 24 hours and called the Norgate Cafe. And the lady that owned that cafe, it was where the, it was a bit like, you know, the movie Grease, all the, the teenagers used to rock up there and that dressed up like John Travolta and Olivia. And we were poor. So we always had secondhand, not much, so much myself. I was the younger, but the, my older sisters and, and brothers and uh, they would be the go-go dancers and rock and roll and twisting. It was, And they used to actually dance in a cage. It was amazing. And we'd all dance. There was no alcohol or drugs involved. Uh, we'd get uh, milkshakes and, and donuts. And the amazing woman, white woman, that owned all of the property there was Mrs Battle. And she had a 10% affirmative action strategy back then in employing Aboriginal Islander people. And my sister worked there for many years with other First Nations peoples as in, in the cafe. And uh, Mrs. Battle used to say that she would send all her uh, clothes and and uh, equipment to the, the Doggett communities. And I didn't know what Doggett meant, and they were the deed of grant and trust uh, where many of our people live, like Palm Island and Yarraba. And so every day I was constantly reminded about racism and every day I was reminded about the trauma 
And it really strengthened uh, me in terms of where I go to after I finish my nursing. So I started nursing in 1967 where the referendum was called and over 90% of other Australians voted for us. And I sit there and I look and think, how are we ever going to get any any more referendums passed in this country? Because it was absolutely amazing that 90% voted for us to become citizens and uh, be connected to some form of the constitution. When we've got the mainstream media speaking terribly about our people, and we also have some of our own people dividing the community as to do we vote for the Uluru? Do we vote for the voice? Do we vote for anything for First Nations people? As we should all be mainstreamed and put us in to the one basket, which has never worked anywhere in the world. And First Nations people cannot be equal until our statistics are identical right throughout the whole system of health, uh, justice, education, all of those issues. And once we're totally handicapped and once our statistics are on par with other Australians, that's when we can be moulded into that one basket. Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. The Congress of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Nurses and Midwives, or Katsunem, has just had its national conference, Get Em and Keep Em and Grow Em. And this gathering of inspiring people who do such important work seemed like a good opportunity for us to take the time to honour a very special person for her services to the profession. The formidable Dr Graceland Smallwood is not only a leader in her field, but has been a lifelong advocate for the rights of First Nations people. That's why I became so active. Even through my nursing, I suffered terrible racism like other First Nations staff where uh, the uh, non-Indigenous patients sometimes refused to be uh, touched by us. And when I looked at the movie Sapphire, I said to somebody when we're sitting there, that was me. And and some of the other Murray Island nurses said, yeah, that was me too. And... uh, I guess with our people, we have a wonderful sense of humour, which has kept our survival through thick and thin. And uh, we make little jokes about it. And I said, oh, I reckon I could have been one of those gorgeous Briggs as those sapphires because I sing all those songs. (laughs) You know, I'm a singer. And sapphires are here in uh, three weeks' time in Townsville. So a lot of my Murray nurses that are still around, we're going to dress up like the sapphires sapphires and go and sit in the front and and just enjoy to de-stress our trauma. So I moved on then, uh, Larissa, from nursing. I graduated. We, uh, My parents, my mum still lived in an old tin shack on the hill when I was in my first year. And uh, she, uh, we were the days where you did your exams and it went from Townsville to Brisbane as a number. And when it came back, um, your tutor sister changed it to your name. And I got 100% for um, the topic of anatomy and physiology. And the kidneys was the first name, uh, first big question. And I studied the kidneys because many of our people were dying of renal failure way back then. And um, I got 100%. And um, I have a lovely white friend to this very day. And she got a credit and I got a high distinction. And her parents asked the matron, 
and the deputy and the deputy matron as well as the um, medical superintendent that there was only there was only two Aboriginal nurses in our group and they asked uh, if it was uh, possible for our papers to have been mixed up that almost impossible with their views of me getting a high distinction and my white friend getting a credit and um, institutional racism is still very clear within our daily living and it doesn't matter if you're a doctor professor or a cleaner or in the park uh, living homelessly we once we identify as aboriginal and islander we're all suffering some form of institutional racism on a daily basis and and that's what a lot of mainstream uh, services and and media cannot come to terms with because they want to treat us all in the one basket and say we're all homogeneous well as you and I know as professors doctors and lecturers that that's impossible and for us to get to that equality we have to deal with the handicap and if we don't have activists like myself and many, many others, we I've had amazing uh, forebearers, freedom fighters that paved the way for people like myself to continue our fight for justice. And we don't want people to go to sleep. We have to get people very active. We have to stop this rubbish of lateral violence because there's only 3.5% of us. So we can't uh, stop the continuation of these horrific statistics right across the board. We still have diseases that developing countries have eradicated and we're one of the most wealthiest countries in the world. And I've travelled the world as a human rights activist. Um, When Nelson Mandela invited me over to give a lecture, a few lectures in the townships, I did a PhD on human rights and uh, I took that over and uh, gave uh, my thesis to the Mandela Foundation and it was published uh, by Rutledge but I also did a Master of Science after my midwifery, my diploma in mental health, and I did a Master of Science on HIV AIDS and public health. Uh, My greatest concern is uh, today as an activist, and I will continue to be an activist till my heart stops and I'm going six foot down to join our ancestors in the dream time. I will continue to fight for justice. I will continue to... um, Uh, talk to uh, white folks to come and join us in our fight for justice because the secret history has certainly been hidden from the education system and certainly been hidden from white Australians and many younger people that, uh, that go to your classes, that go to a lot of universities, they're horrified. And uh, the reason why governments can make any type of legislation, we don't have a treaty. We don't have a voice. We don't have truth. We don't have a Bill of Rights. We only have the Racial Discrimination Act, which Section C is the only one that we can rely on as our soldier system. And that had to be suspended to implement the Northern Territory um, intervention, alcohol management plans. So that's why many of our people, we can all join this party together to keep fighting. We can take parts of the voice, parts of the treaty, parts of the truth, and all of those past uh, histories, uh, uh, legislations that gave us a little bit of respect and joining forces with modern Australia that I believe, and I'm optimistic, 
that once all the drama stops and all the lies about us and everyone starts joining forces and why Australia do their own research because I won't buy that they don't know about it with all the research done by black and white uh, historians, black and white scholars. I'm trying to break that in my own family. I've had great-grandchildren and our, our grandchildren and my children's, all the communities, like many other activists, but unfortunately many of the elders have passed away and left a wonder. So we have to keep that fight going, Larissa. And that's my story, I guess, about why I became active, uh, travelling the world, um, going all over the place. And I'm, I've been saying the same thing for 60 years. I'm just changing the date and the time. And uh, I've been asked to do one of the speeches uh, as a keynote for Red Rose's uh, Domestic Violence Foundation, and I'm very honoured. And uh, we've got to bring everybody together because this violence has no geographical or racial boundaries uh, with against uh, mostly women. And uh, But, of course, our statistics in the First Nations community is uh, uh, very high compared to the deaths of non-Indigenous women, and that has to be addressed and we can't address this without doing trauma uh, healing from a cultural perspective, uh, dealing with the social determinants of health and getting it out there and letting governments know, stop funding programs from a bottoms, uh, uh, from a top-down approach, fund the programs that are culturally appropriate from a bottoms-up approach that's taking away the trauma right across the board and healing our communities. And uh, we will see some changes, I believe, that once, because it's not rocket science, once we heal our communities, we can't just give money for a project, set us up for failure and say, we got, we got one, we saved one out of 500 people. No, we want this ongoing. And we must have treaty, we must have truth, we must have voice because you can't have reconciliation without those three things. And when I went over to Nelson Mandela, he actually said at, uh, in an evening meal that in my country of South Africa, we're having reconciliation with the truth. In sister's country in Australia, they're trying to reconciliate without the truth and it'll never work. They were such amazing words and I've never forgotten amazing man's struggle for justice and we've had lots of wonderful Nelson Mandela's with our beautiful leaders in our country. We've all had such short life expectancies that we still have diseases that developing countries have eradicated, which is an absolute disgrace and an indictment on the system. And uh, it's time for change. I never thought I'd reach 71 years of age, which is in a couple of months, because most of our, our people are dying 10 to 20 years before white Australians. So I don't want to be in that pine box yet until my book is complete. And my dad called the book Amazing Grace. And uh, he always said, uh, you know, you're my freedom fighter. And uh, all of my brothers and sisters had a different role to play. They weren't out there demonstrating in the streets and jumping over parliament, house fences and getting bashed by the police. But uh, people can be an activist in the same way. Everybody working across the board, you can be a public servant, a gentle activist within your teachings, or you can be the heavy activists like the Gary Foley's, uh, the Michael Mansells, the Michael Andersons, the Na Naomi Mayers, all of those 
incredible activists that uh, I had the privilege of actually um, being taught by these amazing people. And uh, so I was one of the lucky ones that even though I was in demonstrations for Black Lives Matter, I was one of the key activists for 14 years of a fight for the uh, death and custody on Palm Island where the mainstream media turned the whole situation around and uh, labelled Lex Watton uh, as uh, inciting a riot. And Palm Island had 50, 45 different families was uh, taken from their families and removed and sent to Palm Island. And it was all that build-up of trauma that they just couldn't take any more. And that's why I will continue to be an activist in my writings as a scholar, because we must leave uh, the legacy for our mob, but also for white Australia to learn from a lot of the stories from grassroots people. And we've only been colonised 230 years, so people are still living that lived under the protection acts of legislation and the South African apartheid was mostly modelled on the Queensland Aboriginal and Islander Protection Act. So my bond with South Africa has always been very strong spiritually and I had followed the late and the great Mandela for many, many years, and my dream was to meet him. And our ancestors uh, made that happen because I've been to South Africa a few times to do teachings in the universities as a professor, but also in the townships uh, doing talks on HIV and leprosy and diseases that uh, many, uh, some countries have eradicated, such as syphilis. Dr. Graceland Smallwood, thank you so much for sharing that story, that inspiration, your tireless work. It's been such a reminder of the role we can all play, but it's also been a wonderful reminder of the enormous contribution you've made. You talk about following in the footsteps of warriors, but you've certainly been a warrior whose footsteps we've followed in and pretty sure um, everyone who's listening can see why you're one of my political heroes. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom um, for all your hard work and for spending some time with us on Speaking Out. Thank you so much, Larissa, and keep up your good work. Watermully, greetings and good farewell from my Birugaba country. Dr. Graceland Smallwood is a nurse, health expert and human rights advocate and an inspiration. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting the world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt. And if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. The Power of Poetry and Words as Protest, a new generation of Indigenous storytellers, is challenging colonial ideas and stories. You'll hear from Indigenous poet and researcher Evelyn Araluen shortly, but right now some music from Frank Yama.
find me another way to die she cried she cried find me another way to die she cried she cried please find me another way to die she cried I don't know where to start when everything falls apart. Please find me. Another way to die, she cried, she cried. As I was walking past, and she was sitting down, she said to me, Are you this fella? Yes. What a day. That love would shine. Life is precious. Down we go Growing old Find me Another way to live She cried She cried That's Pitch and Jajara singer-songwriter Frank Yama with She Cried.
This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Absolute insane joy. That's how Evelyn Araluen felt after she was awarded the 2022 Stella Prize for her book of poetry, Drop Bear. I, like so many others, have been newly energised by the writing of a new generation of First Nations storytellers and writers, and for me, none more so than Evelyn Araluen. Her motivations to write Drop Bear were not about money, but a desire to ensure more Indigenous perspectives are heard and stories told. A descendant of the Bundjalung Nation, Evelyn credits learning the language of her ancestors as giving her a larger breadth of knowledge and techniques when it comes to writing poetry. I had the pleasure of speaking with Evelyn recently as part of Radio National's Big Weekend of Books. I am absolutely just like so thrilled to be able to speak with you about literally anything but about books, just a dream come true. Oh, so lovely. I guess I'll start with a big picture from your reading, from your writing, from your travelling around at writers' festivals. What is your reflection on the state of words in Australia right now? I think we're at a really exciting time for literature in a few different ways. And obviously, like, My big focus on that is talking about First Nations storytelling all of the time, but it is broader than that. There's a really strong community of writers who otherwise I just don't think would have been allowed in the room or would have been able to have access to the kinds of traditional publishing channels that we're seeing really like embrace diversity and embrace the richness of different forms of storytelling today. And, you know, that's been a long, hard-fought battle. It's not like everybody just woke up one day and decided that they care about migrant storytelling, about refugee storytelling, queer storytelling and all of these other different forms of marginalities that often just don't get the mic. But we've got a really beautiful and rich time now where I think that we're We've got the energy, we've got the momentum to really celebrate that work as opposed to just position it always in a place of struggle and always put it on these niche panels talking about lived experience but never getting to talk about the creative work that comes out of lived experience. So I'm loving the festivals. I'm loving, you know, looking at all of the new publications coming out. You know, there's still work to be done, but I think we're absolutely moving in a much stronger and really just much more politically, culturally, socially representative kind of energy in our writing spaces at the moment. You make such a good point about how First Nations writing is positioned at festivals as a real reflection of what's changed in terms of the industry and the community as a whole. And I remember First Nations writers getting really frustrated that all they would be put on would be the the panel on First Nations writing. And now you see First Nations voices peppered throughout because, you know, actually we can talk about a range of things. I wanted to talk to you about what your inspirations were as a reader, but before that, what were your key influences growing up outside of the written word? Uh, I mean, Blackfellas, we have a very rich storytelling tradition and that's mostly not on the page. And so growing up, sitting in rooms and hearing other mob speaking around me in a story that might include, you know, different political histories, different family genealogies, cultural stories, dreaming stories, that interweaving is something that 
really comes out so strongly in the spoken word, but particularly in the conversation. You know, it's not simply this extracted voice of like a singular person telling a telling one story. It's how that gets bounced off of somebody else who remembers another piece of the story. And then somebody who comes in and says, oh, but did you know this one came back to here? And all of these kinds of these really interwoven ways of telling a story. Aboriginal people, we have a really strong sense that you don't need to start and finish a story in the places that Western storytelling would constitute as a beginning and ending because you have that assurance that even if you only tell a part of the story, you're going to see that person another time and keep you know, that story is going to keep being woven and and spoken into. So I think that that did something to my brain that meant that I don't write in a particularly linear way. Poetry particularly allows you to kind of tell parts of a story or to create images as opposed to giving a full explanation for something. And I really like that. I, I think that it's a pretty natural form of expression for Aboriginal storytellers today. You know, when I was really just freshly starting out writing poetry, which was, you know, not even that long ago. I was reading Ellen Van Neuven's Comfort Food, which is a really beautiful collection. And then, you know, getting experimental stylistic inspiration from Alison Whitaker, who was also publishing um, her first book around the same time, Lemons and the Chicken Wire. Again, like that's how we really build up these rich and very diverse storytelling communities. It's by engaging in a community of writers, a community of storytellers, as opposed to the isolated act of just sitting down and absorbing a book. I was reflecting on how easy it is as a First Nations person to lean into your book because the way that you approach story would seem unconventional to people outside the First Nations community, but it feels very natural to us. I think that's one of the reasons it struck such a chord with so many in the community. And the other thing that I love about what you've said is I I always say, you know, you can't be a writer without being a reader, but actually you've made me realise that actually you can't be a writer without being a good listener. You know, there's that lovely saying in our culture that true knowledge comes from listening, not speaking. And it does explain why when I read your book, I thought you were much older than you are. (laughs) I also love that you've done a bit of a shout out to two of our really fabulous new emerging poets as well. But I guess I would also like to ask you what sort of books were influential for you growing up? Well, it's interesting you ask that because I think that you know, so I was growing up in the sort of the late 90s and 2000s when, you know, there was definitely a lot more investment coming up in Aboriginal storytelling, but these were also the Howard years. And I think that there was so much pushback against, you know, the celebration of black culture that it was actually not, you know, there was writing out there, but it really wasn't getting into the curriculum because I think a lot of people were quite intimidated by the political discourse going on at the same time. So, I feel like, you know, while I had definitely like an awareness of writers like Udrunu Knuckle and Kevin Gilbert and Jack Davis growing up, 
I didn't get access to the same kind of richness of black storytellers on, you know, the page that young people can get now. You know, now you can walk into a bookshop and you've got incredible children's books like Amy Maguire, um, Amberlynn Quay Mulliner. You've got like this beautiful, really rich representation of Aboriginal culture right from the absolute get-go. But to be honest, growing up, a lot of the stuff that I was reading, because I was a pretty insane reader, you know, I was reading English literature and it's one of the it's one of the reasons that I found After Story, you know, your latest your latest novel, like just so compelling because it was like Della was going through the canon of everything that I'd felt that I had to read, you know, like I, I wanted to be a reader. I really, I had fantasies of being a librarian before I was, I was ever planning on being a writer. And that, that journey and after story, I find really compelling because it was about the, the, you know, it was really kind of performing that way of, you know, looking straight into the eye of these texts and the legacy that they, they claim and how they constitute an idea of like, what is good literature and how, you know, how do you become a good reader? Oh, well, it's by reading Jane Austen. It's by reading the Brontes. And I read them and they still have an interesting influence over me, but it, it wasn't until, you know, getting into uni and it wasn't really until going to like the Koori Centre at University of Sydney and seeing these books that I'd never even known existed that I really actually started to think of my own writing as including and centering Aboriginality in thinking about writing about the land that I grew up on as opposed to just this abstract idea like, oh, if I write a novel, it has to be set in England or America. So I'm just infinitely grateful for the spaces that collect and centre and present Black books to Black kids because if we don't actually really interrupt the otherwise very whitewashed bookshelves or library shelves or bookstores, we're never actually going to get people who are going to come to that space and look at it and go, you know what, this could be me as well. I could have a book up here and it could be about me and my family and my community as opposed to just talking about these really far off ideas that for most of us are never something that we're going to be experiencing yet we're taught is supposed to be the pinnacle of storytelling. First of all, I love that you dreamt of being a librarian as opposed to an astronaut (laughs) or a ballerina. That's fabulous. But you do kind of remind me of the fact that I feel really privilege that I grew up with, you know, the Western canon, but I had this um, storytelling tradition and this way of seeing the world in my own culture. And so I feel like my upbringing was richer because I had those two perspectives as opposed to everyone who only had one. And um, I guess that was one of the things I wanted to explore in After Story is that, you know, we we grow up with these two traditions because we visit we visit one when we go to school and we have the one that we have at home uh, that's, that's, you know, part of how uh, probably more deeply how we're shaped in seeing the world. But it does make me wonder how you as a First Nations writer feel about how you communicate with your First Nations audience as opposed to a non-Indigenous audience. I just feel like we do have these two different audiences. And I know from my own experience, you know, there's a certain way in which I want to connect with a First Nations audience, exactly what you were saying. I want people to see themselves on the page. I want them to connect with the ideas and the issues intuitively. And certainly when I read your work, that's how I feel. But, you know, I also want non-Indigenous people to see this world that I know and love. I was just wondering how you as a writer see your dual audiences or your multiple audiences, really. 
Yeah, that's really the the biggest challenge, I think. And it's one that in various stages of trying to really conceptualise Drop Bear, it was a real, you know, it was a real issue for me. When I was writing some of the poems of Drop Bear, which are very, you know, some of them are very angry and they are really engaging very directly with signifiers of Australian settler colonial literature, I was at certain points kind of really worried that it would come off that I was prioritising that anger, which was in a relationship with settler coloniality as opposed to centering love and tenderness and the intimacy for family and for country. And it was a journey to get the book to a point in which I felt like the project that I wanted to enact, which was an honest and entangled dialogue about what, you know, Australian literary but also broader kind of artistic culture has done to our land and how we are, you know, simultaneously speaking back to that and also really like sort of structured by it, if that makes sense. So, it, you know, I, it wasn't until I got to a point where I realised that the upbringing that I'd had where my parents did really try to encourage us all to read and to surround us with books that were about Australia, whether or not they were by black authors or not, you know, they they just wanted us to read stories that looked like the land that we grew up on, you know, that was not a unique experience. A lot of other Aboriginal people had grown up with Snugglepot and Cuddlepie and Blinky Bill and Dot and the Kangaroo. It was a familiar intimacy. And when I thought about a project of critique that was really about acknowledging that these are not, you know, these are not legacies that just go away as we get older. The way that these books influence our understanding of place is is really hard to shake off and that, you know, this book, my book, could do something about acknowledging that and trying to, I guess, not necessarily deconstruct but kind of clear a little bit of space where we could talk about we could talk about it without feeling like we were completely beholden to it. And that was a project that I felt could benefit other mob. So, you know, there's, there's poems in there that I want people to feel like they're not just speaking to mob. They're actually just speaking to the whole of Australian literature, the whole of that artistic literary culture. Um, And, you know, if there are poems in there that mob feel don't speak directly to them but help verbalise how we want to speak back to that culture, then I've kind of done the best that I possibly could have done, I guess. Well, you have done that because I'm actually currently writing some non-fiction at the moment and I've used a couple of quotes from you to um, start Ooh. whole chapters. So I'm just saying if that was <laughs> your goal, you're doing really well. And I love that too. You know, I've been doing this my work for decades and I can still read you or read Alison Whitaker and I see words that explain what I've been trying to say, but I haven't been able to say it in that way. And, uh, you know, I love that that our writing keeps giving us a language and a dialogue. Evelyn and it's been such a privilege to spend this time with you on the big weekend of books. Thank you so much for having me. That's poet and researcher Evelyn Araluen. She was speaking with me on RN's big weekend of books.
It builds you up till you've had enough Then won't let you be
That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we bring you more stories from Indigenous Australia. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt.